Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In this month's special podcast, Professor Krina Zonderman and Professor Christian Becker from the University of Oxford talk about their scientific and clinical work on endometriosis. My name is Magda and I am a digital intern at DRI. When not at DRI, I keep myself busy working on my PhD looking into endometriosis. Today, I will be interviewing my supervisors, but I have asked them to pretend I know nothing about endometriosis. Tune in to see how it went. Good morning, Rina and Christian, and thank you very much for joining us for this month's special podcast. Together, you two co-direct the Oxford Endometriosis Care Centre at the University of Oxford, where both clinical care and research into endometriosis come together. Christian, you are a gynecologist focusing on endometriosis. Well, thank you very much for inviting us. And Krina, you are a genetic epidemiologist. Thank you very much. I cannot wait to hear more about your work and how you became interested in this disease. So what is endometriosis? So endometriosis is a common disease in women. It's per definition something where the uh, lining of the uterus, the endometrium, is found outside of the uterine or the womb cavity. This can cause uh, pelvic pain of different sorts. It can also sometimes cause infertility in women. It's relatively common. We believe up to 10% of women, women during reproductive phase are suffering from endometriosis. This also suggests that there's some hormonal Im- uh, involvement there. It is a, a disease that is hormone dependent and obviously estrogen is mostly uh, present during during the reproductive phase. And that translates into probably about 1.5 million women in the UK. And uh, more recent data suggests uh, if you extrapolate this, it's about 190 million women worldwide. So a huge, huge number. Not all of them are necessarily suffering from the disease, but many are. And I think there's a lot of women out there who do not know whether they have endometriosis and it's a real challenge to really help those women. I think there's two big clinical challenges and currently it's only really possible to diagnose the disease definitively through surgery, um, a laparoscopy, so that's a keyhole surgery essentially where a gynaecologist can, can look at the disease and see if it's there. So diagnosis is a real challenge and we know from many countries worldwide that there's a huge delay in diagnosis for women so the average delay of diagnosis is uh, is around about eight years which is is something not just seen here in this country in the UK but it's seen worldwide and that's clearly something we need to address so easier diagnosis non-invasive diagnosis is uh, is really important secondly is there's two uh, sort of main main lines of treatment one is, is medical is horm- hormones that essentially affect the hormonal patterns in the body and the growth of of disease and secondly it's surgery so trying to remove disease deposits but there's there's no guarantees there they can in some women they do grow back and that's where the challenges lie so so trying to identify new drugs new treatments that don't have as many side effects is a real key priority as well so endometriosis is this endometrium like tissue found outside of the uterus How does it get there? Are there any theories for what causes the disease? Well, there are a few theories, but we're still lacking absolute proof uh, that's right. So the most 
commonly believed theory is that of retrograde menstruation. So about 100 years ago, someone described for the first time that women who have her period uh, or have the period, um, they may also have blood not only exiting the uterine cavity through the vagina, but also the other way around through the fallopian tubes into the abdomen. That then could mean that the that blood and the, the tissue that's coming off the uterine lining is then attaching there and growing there. The problem with that is if you do nowadays, if you do a laparoscopy when a woman is having her period, which we often do just because we cannot really do operation when, when it suits because this is how, how the system works in the UK for sure, we um, see that... Um, Basically, anyone who has open fallopian tubes has blood floating around in the abdomen. That obviously does not mean that everybody who has that will have endometriosis. So there must be other things involved. And people have looked at this in in tissue culture. So they found that the uterine lining in women with endometriosis overexpresses certain certain factors that make that uterine lining, uh, those cells, a bit more sticky, possibly more invasive as well able to acquire blood supply, uh, but also the immune system seems to play a big role where maybe the immune system in women who actually develop endometriosis from this retrograde menstruation may not be as efficient as in those who, who are well. That's also how nowadays drug companies are looking into this and they want to see whether there are medications out there potentially that attack the endometriosis, not only from a hormonal perspective, but also more from a uh, functional perspective. So looking really into the detailed mechanisms and hopefully therefore avoiding also the side effects that we often get with the hormonal treatment. So here we are. We are looking at a disease that affects around 190 million women worldwide, causes debilitating pain and in some cases fertility issues. We do not have an easy way of diagnosing it, and the treatment options are very limited. To be diagnosed, women usually have to wait 8 years. Yet, Krina tells me that endometriosis is as common and as costly to society as is type 2 diabetes. We have all heard of diabetes, but only about 20% of the general public have heard of endometriosis. Why is that? It's, you know, there's many things. Uh, clearly, it's, it's a very difficult disease to treat and diagnose compared to, you know, for example, type 2 diabetes. So, you know, it's a real enigma for, for doctors as well and for GPs. You know, when a woman comes with symptoms that could suggest endometriosis, it could also suggest many other conditions. Uh, and it's, it's re- a really hard task to try and, and figure out you know, what actually are causing the symptoms. Um, clearly... The symptoms themselves, so we're talking about pelvic pain, that's pain, you know, with periods, talking about periods, pain during sex, you know, talking about that can be difficult. Um, and it clearly has been, there's clearly been a stigma around that, I think is changing, but it's, it's only gradually changing. Christian probably similarly, but I started working on endometriosis more than 20 years ago and when I as a student, and talk to people about endometriosis. Most people hadn't heard of it. That has now changed. I mean, there's a lot more in the media um, about it. But still, um, people are puzzled that um, there's this lack of knowledge about the disease and how, how it affects women and their families and their friends, etc. So that's another, I think, important 
task we have is to inform the public and raise awareness. I see a lot of patients who come to see us here. Um, it took them, first of all, a long time to uh, see a GP because maybe their sister or their mother or grandmother, they all had painful periods or pain uh, throughout the cycle. Uh, and therefore, they assumed it was a normal thing. Now, not obviously not everybody who has these symptoms has endometriosis. I think that should be quite clear as well. Yeah. But at least we as doctors should think of it as an option and then investigate this further. Now, investigating this further is not very easy because those symptoms are very unspecific. So you could come up with very different reasons for it. And um, as Karina was um, mentioning earlier, we're lacking proper blood tests, for example, um, to, to find out or rule out endometriosis. Um, imaging isn't great. You can do ultrasound scans um, or, if necessary, an MRI to look at ovarian cysts and uh, maybe what we call deep endometriosis, which is usually when the disease involves other organs and grows a bit deeper than only in the, uh, sur- on, the, on the surface of the pelvic cavity. But um, if it's a superficial disease, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reliably find out or rule it out, um, whether someone has it or not. And that, that is, that's a real challenge. So for us here in a tertiary center, it is relatively easy because we get all the filtered patients already from the GPs, but the GPs, they have to deal with women who are um, coming with um, these symptoms, which are not always very clear, and they have to find out whether it's endometriosis or not. But there are also some doctors who either not, never heard of endometriosis or don't think it's a, it's a real disease. And that is why um, there's, a, there's pretty good data now to suggest that uh, patients have seen a lot of uh, doctors before actually the, the first diagnosis is made. Karina can talk about this. Um, they've done a study a few years back. Mm. Yeah, so, so we, we, um, we published some data on in, I think it was 2011. This was um, Kelechi Noham uh, default thesis. Um, and he looked at the impact of endometriosis in, I think it was 16 centres in 10 countries worldwide, asking the question of, of women who were undergoing their very first laparoscopy for symptoms that could imply endometriosis. Some were diagnosed with endometriosis, some weren't. But they were all asked the question, when did symptoms first start? How many physicians have you seen in the meantime? Who have you seen in terms of specialties? And the the picture from that was pretty clear. It was that um, there was a huge impact on women's lives from the symptoms that they were experiencing. It was quite commonly impacting many different aspects of their lives. For example, their work productivity, you know, the way they could carry out their daily activities, etc. Typically, they had seen, on average, their GP about seven times before they were referred onto um, a gynaecologist. Uh, They may have been referred, depending on other symptoms that they had, they may have been referred to other specialties as well, gastroenterologists, for example. So I think it confirmed the um, sort of picture, I guess, that that we already had in the clinic, that, you know, how complex this is. And this is something that is a problem globally. Many patients suffer from pain that feels like very sharp knives cutting inside their abdomen. The disease has a big impact on their daily lives. Sometimes they cannot even go to work for three to four days each month. It's really hard to believe that some doctors have not even heard of endometriosis or do not think it's a real disease. I am left wondering, what causes such pain? 
Is it the presence of the endometrium-like tissue outside of the womb? Very good question. We think so in a lot of cases, but it is not really clear. So there's no correlation between the extent of disease and the severity of symptoms. So that probably points away from that theory. There is very poor connection between localization of disease and uh, the localization of pain, f except for certain uh, subgroups of, of endometriosis. So again, it's unclear. We do see in some patients um, who come to us relatively early and they have relatively confined disease that they do, some of them, not everybody, get better if the disease is treated surgically properly. But we also know that there's a high recurrence rate of, well, we usually see about 50% within five years. That also means that, you know, there's obviously a lot of women who may have recurrence much earlier. And therefore, there is, again, a chance that the disease um, and the pain are not directly correlated. And pelvic pain is much more complex than at least in some women, then, you know, just taking a disease off and hope, hopefully everything's fine. I think one of the issues that we have is that there's such a long delay between the onset of symptoms and when the diagnosis and the treatment is um, made and given. And there are more and more data now to suggest that um, if you treat someone earlier, then you may avoid other central changes in the central nervous system and maybe improve uh, treatment outcome as well. And when it comes to the pain and symptoms, you also mentioned hormonal treatment. Does this work really well to help reduce the pain women suffer? Again, it, it does work for some women. Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem is we don't know in whom, but what GPs often do, rightly so, if they think about endometriosis and patient comes to the door with a particular um, pain symptom, they uh, treat them with hormones. And in a lot of cases, it works very well, uh, but unfortunately not in everybody. And the issue again here is that hormones, like any medication, have an effect and a side effect. There are different types of hormones, so the first-line treatment is usually um, the pill or a similar drug, so progesterone-based uh, medication. But there are various things, and you know, in some women, we even suggest um, giving them hormones that suppress their own hormone production significantly, meaning we put them into artificial menopause for the time being. Um, now, that suppresses their estrogen levels significantly, and they will have menopausal side effects. In some women, that works, again, quite well. But, um, again, it has these, you know, you have to imagine these women are very young, and you're putting them into artificial menopause, um, even though you can nowadays try to alleviate those symptoms with adding some HRT, hormone replacement therapy. But whether this is a long-term perfect solution, I would strongly doubt and I think there's a, you know, there's a huge unmet clinical need uh, to find better medication. I think it comes back to com exactly as Christian was saying, the complexity of pain. And it's not something actually that is um, unique to endometriosis-associated pain. Pain is an incredibly complex symptom. Clearly, is associated with many different, you know, diseases, etc. And the the pain field in itself is, is working incredibly hard trying to understand better how pain is produced 
uh, what the different qualities of the pain could be. So, for example, endometriosis is very much an inf uh, inflammatory condition. You know, is some of the inflammation that results from these disease, uh, these bits of tissue not being in the right place, is that a trigger for pain? And it likely is as well. Some people have, have noticed that, that nerves can grow into um, the disease deposits. Mm -hmm. To what extent do they transfer pain signals? There's a lot to be learned still, but we have, as part of our centre as well, we have one of the principal investigators here, Katie Vincent, who is a pain expert and who is also a clinician and treats treats women um, who have you know, predominantly pelvic pain symptoms, and those could be due to endometriosis or, or maybe not. But she, she really, and, and with her many others, looking at it at a very sort of multidisciplinary uh, approach. So um, as Christian already pointed out, it, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all into these kind of treatments. You know, hormones can work don't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes certain exercises may work, physiotherapy may work. Uh, and I think the evidence is pretty strong that actually combining those kind of treatments generally works better than just, just um, adopting one of them. Uh, and I think that's another approach, I think, sorry, within the endometriosis care centre that we, um, you know, that we embrace. So let's talk a bit more about the centre. We mentioned at the beginning that together you two co-direct the Oxford Endometriosis Care Centre and that you have this unique partnership of a clinician and a scientist. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about what exactly you do there and how the centre came about? Yeah, so um, I think both of us have been working on endometriosis for quite a few years and um, then around, I believe, 2012, I think it was, mm -hmm. our head of department thought, well, it may be best if we get those two people together and uh, get the best out of it. And so we decided to um, found this, uh, this centre uh, with the aim to really optimise medical treatment uh, with world-class um, uh, research because uh, Oxford has always had very large uh, clinical population but also a long-standing history of research into endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think with the centre, what we're really trying to do is go from the basic science, trying to uh, you know, find out what causes a disease, um, what, what's involved in terms of the biology um, that could tell us something about how we could improve treatments or earlier diagnosis. So lots of different basic science studies going on. There's clinical studies where you know, we're asking women to, to you know, participate and going to what we call translational studies where we work with we were very, you know, many different collaborators, industry, um, other academic collaborators, to try and translate literally um, the kind of results that we find into, you know, how can we make treatments better? How can we make better drugs? How we can test for earlier diagnoses? So can you tell me a bit more about the team who is involved in both the clinical care and research? We have a very multidisciplinary team. Of, uh, I think over 25 people now and that starts crucially with you know research nurses team who um, approach women to see whether they want to participate in our research uh, collect questionnaires from them collect samples that we need for the biological research that we're doing to the data management side you know trying to make sure that all the data that we that we have is entered without any errors and appropriately etc and that can be used for research that we do um, we have you know, many students who um, work for their PhDs and their master's degrees 
on various projects related to endometriosis. And again, it's, it's very varied. So looking at different diagnostic mecha- uh, mechanisms, looking at potential new treatments, etc. And then we have a number of wonderful, wonderful postdocs as well um, who do a lot of the research you know, for us and with us and, and help sort of manage the team. So, yeah, very, very multidisciplinary. And, of course, you're one of the wonderful students that we have, you know, looking at, uh, looking at a single cell and looking at single cell genomics uh, in relation to endometriosis. Yeah, and um, I think also we are, you know, very indebted the help from our clinical uh, colleagues. Um, so it starts with the nurses, uh, admin staff, um, a lot of trainees and consultant colleagues who all help us collect data and well first recruit patients collect data and and samples biological samples during surgical procedures for example which help us with our you know research studies and that's crucial i mean that's you know without that it would be very difficult to do proper research impossible yes so it's a really big team effort absolutely yeah Christian and Krina then tell me that there are many things needed to improve the lives of patients affected by endometriosis. These include talking about endometriosis, knowing what it is, and finding quicker ways to diagnose the disease. And of course, treatment that would be effective with no side effects. And this is something they are working on at the center. Yeah, absolutely. Through various through various routes, as you mentioned, my background is in genetic genetic epidemiology. I'm, I'm looking at data and, and samples uh, in terms of their um, essentially genetic variation. So um, we know we've known for a very long time that endometriosis is what we call heritable, and that means that the risk of say a, a daughter of a, a mum with endometriosis for her to get endometriosis is higher than the sort of general population risk. It does not mean that a daughter, by definition, will get endometriosis as well, by any means. Mm-hmm. So it's what we call a complex trait. So there's many different factors that determine a risk uh, of endometriosis, and those are can be genetic. They're also likely to be environmental factors that we haven't uncovered yet, etc. So one of the approaches we take in the centre is to look at understanding the genetics of the disease and what I mean with that is that in a disease that is so poorly understood such as endometriosis looking at genetics can help what it hopefully will tell us is which areas of what we call now called the genome in humans in women which areas seem to harbor particular variants that increase risk of endometriosis and if we can identify those that will actually then tell us something about the biology underlying the condition and that's important because we really, as, as Christian pointed out, we have very little clue as to what you know causes the disease, uh, other than quite possibly retrograde menstruation, but which happens in a lot of women. So why is it that only in some women, these cells that are endometrial cells that are part of retrograde menstruation manage to stick to pelvic walls, manage to grow, manage to grow a blood supply, etc., and manage to survive. It's been a very long road in trying to identify those. We had lots of, I think, preconceptions and ideas about what that would be. For example, the immune system, as, as Christian already mentioned. We thought that when we were doing our first genetic studies, that would show us that it's actually immune regulation genes that would be involved and we were quite surprised to find that that's not that those were not the genes that would would come up you know in the first instance what we're seeing is um, genes that are involved in the workings of the endometrium so endometrial biology 
and those are complex in itself. So, but they'll, they'll probably have something to do with cellular changes within the endometrium, and and those might influence the likelihood that these cells stick somewhere else. Um, we've done a number of what we what we call genome-wide association studies over the over the past number of years. Those are highly collaborative. We need very large numbers of women who are happy to donate their DNA for these kind of studies. And we're now in a phase where we're, we're leading a consortium that involves uh, 25 different data sets worldwide in total of more than 60,000 cases. And we're starting to see now we have more than 50 areas of the genome that we know for sure are involved in the disease. And we're now working towards, so this is very much analysis that, that, that are happening right now. And a lot of it is led by Nila Ferrari-Mioglu, who's one of the wonderful postdocs, as I mentioned, who, who um, are part of the centre. And uh, we're working very hard to try and now understand what those uh, results mean in terms of biology and translation. So it's early days, but I think we, we have some very interesting leads that would help us in the future, I think. Yeah. I mean, we're very lucky that... Um, we're able to collect a lot of samples from our endometriosis patients. So here in Oxford, we aim uh, to uh, collect you know, very significant um, clinical data, but also intraoperative data and biological samples, including blood and urine and saliva from, from women undergoing surgery for suggested or for endometriosis as a possibility. And um, I must say the patients are very motivated and really would like to help. And they are aware that they may not be the ones who are benefiting from this, uh, but hopefully future generations as well. A large number of patients go through the doors of the Oxford Endometriosis Care Centre. Each patient is unique in both their symptoms and what surgeons find inside the abdomen. So how do surgeons know what to excess? I must ask, what does endometriosis look like inside the body? Well, it has a lot of faces. So at the moment, we differentiate between three different entities. So superficial endometriosis, uh, which is usually found in the pelvis, but can also be in rare cases um, high up in the abdomen or other places in the in the body. Then ovarian endometriosis, which per definition is um, endometriosis within the ovary, usually causing uh, cysts. And then, as I said earlier, there's deep endometriosis. Now, deep endometriosis, for example, is very fibrotic, which means it feels like scar tissue, and that looks very different from superficial endometriosis, which can be very, very tiny, very few millimeter uh, size spots in the pelvis of different colors. So they are sometimes red, they're sometimes brown, sometimes blue and black. Whether that really uh, shows different stages of the disease, there's still a lot of, lot of discussion about that. So I think if you have an experienced surgeon, he or she will know what to treat. But I think that's one of the reasons why, for example, the NICE guidelines here in the UK suggest that women with endometriosis should ideally be treated in centers who deal with this properly and on a daily basis, because sometimes these lesions can be very, very subtle. And if you have a surgeon who's not primarily interested in endometriosis, he or she could miss it because you really sometimes have to look very closely to find it or to rule it out. So endometriosis is really complex, complicated and heterogeneous. And you know what? It's also pretty complicated and confusing from the genetics side. 
it's not one disease, it, is, it has multiple faces, and we don't even know yet really to what extent it is the same disease, whether there's overlap in the causes, for example. Um, we have found almost all the genetic variants that are implicated in endometriosis are associated with in- increased risk for what is termed stage 3, 4 disease. Um, there's a classification, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, I think the, the latest version was from 1997 that was published, but there's, there's stages 1 to 4, and it's really a description, a descriptive um, tool of looking at the extent of disease, to what extent there are adhesions there, where these deposits are localised, whether there is cyst on the ovaries, what we call an endometrioma. So it's kind of a bit of a scoring system to look at the extent of disease. But what we've seen from genetic studies is that most of these genetic variants seem to associate with what we call stage 3-4 disease, where, there's, where there are more adhesions, where it's much more likely there to be uh, one of these cysts and an endometrioma. And uh, we currently don't know what that means, you know, is it, is it which biology is that driving? And that's exactly what we're trying to find out. So understanding subtypes of disease will absolutely help us um, identify better treatments that are targeted towards those subtypes. So would endometriosis then be a progressive disease when you would go from stage 1, 2 to stage 3, 4? Or is it almost like two different diseases that we're looking at? Oh, we don't know. <laughs> we, we really don't know. Um, I mean, it's unlikely that, you know, overnight you have stage 4 disease and everything's just stuck together. So there must be a certain form of progression. But we do not know whether how fast this progression, if at all, happens and where does it stop. Uh, So some women may, with endometriosis, may only, quote unquote, only have minimal disease with very few spots. And some it may develop very quickly into much more. So we have absolutely no idea who is in which group. And again, there's no correlation between the severity of symptoms and the extent of disease. Um, So sometimes you have women where the entire pelvis or pelvic organs are stuck together and it's more an incidental finding where you do a laparoscopy for other reasons and you find that and they do not or did not report of any pain at all. It's rare, but it does happen sometimes, which, again, shows you the complexity of, of the symptoms and the connection to the disease. It must be really difficult to study such a complex disease. What kind of challenges do both scientists and clinicians face in the process? Well, I think, as I guess as Christian already alluded to, some of the challenge we've had for decades is the lack of reproducibility of findings between between studies. And I think that's something we can definitely now address. Um, I think the other challenge we face in terms of genomics is translation of, of results. So, and that's this is a really big one, and that's one that the entire field of genomics is facing in other diseases as well. So, just to give you a little bit of background, when we first started doing these so-called genome-wide association studies, the thought was that We'd do these studies, we'd look at certain variants that seemed to imply there was a greater risk for disease, in this case endometriosis. And the assumption was that these variants would land nicely in a gene. If you think about the genome as a whole, there's a huge number of variants in there. But there's only a very small proportion that sit in genes. There's a lot of variants that sit outside of genes. And in the past, 
this is now the distant past, those parts of the genome were considered kind of junk DNA. Everyone was focused on the genes because the genes are the bits of DNA that actually translate to a protein and proteins are the building blocks of our bodies basically. So everyone was thinking if we can find these variants that sit in genes we will know which protein is altered and therefore then we will know what that protein, that's a protein that's involved in a disease process and hey presto, you know, we have something that we could design a new uh, drug for or we could find if we can pick that up, that protein in blood and we can test it as for their biomarker potential. Turns out that's not as simple as that. So these variants don't tend to land in genes. They, don't, they tend to land outside of genes. And what we now know is that those regions of the genome are really important in what we call gene regulation. So they don't necessarily affect the protein that is transcribed, they affect the level of protein that's described. So it's much more subtle um, regulation. And therein lies a problem because we need to identify how these variants perturb, how these variants affect these kind of protein levels. So all of a sudden, we have a much bigger job in our hands. We also know that how they affect protein levels depends on which tissue you look at. It's all very different compared to if you compare the endometrium with, say, whole blood or the liver or the kidney. Uh, and therefore, you need to analyse the, the, the tissue of interest, in our case, endometrium, and you need to produce so-called genetic profiles of these tissues you need to produce protein profiles of these tissues. And that can then tell you something about, okay, well, this variant seems to affect protein levels in this particular tissue, so an endometrium. That's exactly the kind of work we are now embarking on with, um, with us many, many people. I mean, one really important thing to say is that all of this work is collaborative. You cannot do this on your own, in your own lab. You know, and we have a wonderful community that we, we all work together on this. So, so in terms of, I think, research and promise for new treatments and, and biomarkers, I think that's a big challenge. I don't know if you want to talk about the clinical challenges. Well, um, you know, the, as I said earlier, you know, the, the main clinical challenge is to get on top of well, the two main issues for the women. One is the pain and one is um, fertility issues, which we haven't really covered yet. So pain, as I said, recurs quite often in, in these women, and the medical treatment and surgical treatment that we have is far from perfect. We see that approximately 30% of women with endometriosis, there may be a fertility issue. I see a lot of patients coming to, to see us here and they say, well, you know, I learned on Google that I have endometriosis and therefore I'm not going to have any babies. So that's one thing that you need to get out of their heads mm. and ex explain to them that it's a bit more, more complex than that, meaning that, yes, they may have endometriosis, but that still gives them a very, very good chance of conceiving. So when they're ready, they should conceive. I am also not very much pro what what some some colleagues suggest that you have endometriosis become pregnant now, uh, they should become pregnant when they're ready. Also because we don't know whether there is progression of disease or not. There are no data really to support it one way or the other. And um, then again, find the right treatment for the right person. So hopefully with you know, a combination of genetic studies that Krina was talking about, molecular studies in the future, etc., we may be able to find a more 
tailored way of treating the individual, uh, whereas at the moment we use one drug fits all um, or one surgical treatment fits all. I think there's more and more data that uh, suggests endometriosis is not one disease or not even the three subtypes of disease as we're using at the moment. Um, I think it's much more complex. Um, you see this from, from other, other conditions. So we heard endometriosis is very complex and there is a lot of unknowns and surprises. However, because there are so many things we don't know, many misconceptions can arise easily. Such as, for example, having endometriosis means not being able to have a baby. Are there many misconceptions about endometriosis? Um, difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, well, for me, you know, also I have a you know, fertility uh, background. I think the main misconception is um, the issue with the fertility. Although, yeah, there are data to support that there's a connection there. If you imagine that it's a chronic inflammatory disease, as Karina mentioned, and therefore often pelvic organs stick together, and just purely from that, from the anatomical distortion, mm-hmm. you can imagine that it's much more difficult for the fallopian tubes to pick up the egg at the time of ovulation. But again, it does not happen in everybody, and sometimes, again, you see significant disease, and people say, well, you're not going to get pregnant naturally, and they, they do get pregnant. I think it's probably less likely, and that's something that someone has to discuss with them, also depending on their age and therefore how many eggs are still left in their ovaries. And again, there's some discussion whether uh, endometriosis itself has an effect on the number of eggs that are surviving in the the ovaries and the quality of those as well. Um, So I think that's, from my perspective, one of the main misconceptions. But probably on a primary care level as well, again, that we don't think of the disease always, and I think that has to increase. But as I said earlier, not everybody with the symptoms has the condition. One of the things that I came across when doing some Google research on endometriosis was that before, hysterectomy, which means removing the uterus, had been prescribed as a treatment, and in a way, as a cure for endometriosis. I was very keen to hear Christian's comments on that. So, uh, very tricky. As we discussed, retrograde menstruation plays a role, probably, as much as we can tell so far. And obviously the uterus is the central reproductive organ where the menstruation comes from. Therefore, and in women, one of the main symptoms is pain during periods. Therefore, if you take the uterus out, you could say, well, that's it, we're done. It doesn't work like this again as expected, I guess, nowadays. It shows, again, the, the difficulties we have with the condition. And that's probably because, again, it's a hormone-driven disease. If you do a hysterectomy and you leave the ovaries behind and there's still endometriosis, even at a cellular level, there's a possibility that these cells start to grow and cause more pain or other issues. And therefore, taking the uterus out does not necessarily bring a benefit. The other issue is that often patients with endometriosis have a, another condition in parallel, which is called adenomyosis. And that, if you look into old books, people put it together as, as one uh, big condition. It's probably separate. And that's where the, the cells from the uterine lining grow into the muscle of the uterus, so you know, away from the cavity into the muscle. And 
that often causes very painful and or heavy and irregular periods. And if that is the main reason for the pain, then you could argue a hysterectomy, meaning the uterus out, helps. There's probably a more elegant way of treating it medically by inserting a, a coil that releases progesterone. It's the Marina coil. There's a, um, a second one out on the market now, which may work as well. But again, it's a drug that has effects and side effects. Uh, but usually we would recommend if someone is really thinking about having the uh, uterus out, maybe try the coil first. And if it doesn't work because of side effects, but it may work with, with the symptoms, then I think surgery is, the, uh, is an option. You know, surgery is it's an invasive procedure and there are risks involved. And even though we do surgery more or less every day nowadays here, things still happen and uh, you really have to think about the pros and the cons. Living with endometriosis is tough, as well as treating it and studying it. It really is a big enigma. But we are getting close to the end, so there is one last question to ask. What do you think and hope will change in the next 5 to 10 years for patients with endometriosis? I think what's probably on the horizon earliest is a better diagnosis. I think I think that's more realistic than if you think about how how long the pathway is to develop new treatments. Clearly, with new treatments, we have to be absolutely sure that those are safe and that they're effective. So if you talk to someone from pharmaceutical industry, I mean, that pathway is easily 10 years, even though I think we now have some really, starting to get some really interesting results that will help develop new treatments. There will still be, there's a, there's a, a lot of time left to, to develop that into you know, drugs that come onto the market. I think, I don't know what you think, Christian, but I think finding a marker for disease is probably on the on the horizon. Having said that, I think the challenge we still face is this concept of the disease can have many faces. And these markers are likely to be markers for subtypes of disease. So actually finding them is tricky. You need to figure out first what the subtypes are before you can find them. Um, so it's a little bit chicken and egg. But I think that's one of the, the hopes that we have that we'll, we'll move on yeah, to. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree. I think the, the message that people ha- mm-hmm. really have to understand is that it's a complex, heterogeneous condition, so multifacial or however you want to call it. And therefore, we have to stop believing that one size fits all. Probably have to attack um, both from a diagnostic but also from a therapeutic perspective the different subtypes. I think the biomarker situation, we do see quite a few companies now looking into this. Obviously, it's a big market, so I understand that from a financial perspective, and there's an urgent need as well, so therefore it's a positive thing. Uh, we have to be very careful, though, that the, the studies that are done are, again, done properly with good samples and large sample numbers, plus that the data are then confirmed in independent data sets. So that it's not only one single study that is out there gives then hope to millions of women. It really has to be confirmed with large-scale studies involving samples from, from other centers. And only if that really confirms the initial data, then I think there's something out there. But I strongly encourage everybody to take part in these studies because without that, we wouldn't be able to get anywhere. Yeah, that is true. It's all thanks to all the researchers and 
patients that and are patients, willing to donate yeah. their samples. That's right. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks!